Welcome to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast, where we have great conversations with unity-minded Christians. Our goal is to encourage unity of the Spirit within the Stone-Campbell movement and beyond. We believe unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and join us as we seek to fulfill Jesus' prayer that we may all be one. And now... Here are your co-hosts. Well, welcome back to the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Our mission, as you know, is to have good dialogue and conversations within the various streams of the Stone Campbell movement. And I am excited not only today to have a great guest uh, to interview, but to have a, a co-host with me today, Nadine Templer, with us today. And Nadine was uh, interviewed uh, not long ago on our podcast by Megan, and uh, I'd encourage you to go back and to hear those two interviews. Uh, You'll be inspired uh, by hearing about Nadine's uh, spiritual life, her ministry, her passion uh, for her work with Hope uh, Worldwide. But let me give her just a brief introduction. You're going to notice by her accent uh, that she, uh, a little bit, uh, French, a little bit English, and uh, she was converted in London, England, uh, back in 1986. Uh, she and and Mark were married. They led a mission team to Bangalore, India, and they have spent uh, most of their adult lives in South Asia, serving the church and serving uh, those that are are materially poor. She serves as a senior director for volunteer corps at Hope Worldwide. Uh, which sends groups of volunteers from countries across the globe. She's passionate about serving young people, the marginalized, those who are less privileged. Nadine uh, and Mark, they live in Kathmandu, Nepal. They've got five kids. Nadine, welcome to uh, Common Grounds now as a co-host today and, and next podcast. Thank you so much for having me again. Yes, it's fun to see the great work you all are doing all the way from Nepal. Um, thank you so much for having me today. Well, so glad to be working together with you. And we have a great guest to interview today. Dr. James Gorman is professor of history at Johnson University. He's married to Dr. Heather Gorman, who's a professor of New Testament at Johnson as well. Jamie goes by Jamie. Jamie and Heather, they have two beautiful daughters, Anna and Lisa. They live in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, Jamie earned a Bachelor of Science degree in business administration at Kentucky Christian University. And he's got a Master's of Divinity at Abilene Christian University, uh, both in Greek and in history. And then he earned a Ph.D. in religion from Baylor University down in Waco, Texas. And when you ask Jamie about his influence and what he wants his students to become, Jamie says, I want them to be more thoughtful actors in the world, more concerned for unity and justice, and more like Christ. Um, Jamie has... uh, couple of projects that I want to mention um, and, and just let you know you can easily purchase these books on Amazon. Uh, his most recent um, work that's been produced is a work that he edited with Jeff Childers and Mark Hamilton. There are a number of contributors to this good work. It is called Slavery's Long Shadow, Race and Reconciliation in American Christianity. It was released in 2019. It's on Erdman's Publisher. So we'll talk a little bit about that, uh, particularly in 
our uh, our next podcast. But then back in 2016, he wrote Among the Early Evangelicals, The Transatlantic Origins of the Stone Campbell Movement. Uh, it's a book that was published by ACU Press back in 2016. And it, it moves us to, to not just the American roots of our Stone Campbell Movement, but to its transatlantic origins and roots. And, and takes us back into some history that maybe many of us are unfamiliar with. So, Jamie, so good to have you with us today. Welcome to Common Ground Unity Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. All right. Well, Nadine, I'm going to let you kick us off, if you will. Yes. Thank you so much. So, Jamie, wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Before we get into media questions, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your life, your ministry, your spiritual journey, or anything else you would like to share with us? Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in the acapella churches of Christ. My dad was a, a preacher. So I grew up as a PK, always in the church, always there uh, when it when it was when the doors were open. Um, uh, you know, I did have a rebellious moment there for a bit in uh, in high school. Uh, we, but you know, we we uh, ended up starting a band. We were playing all the time, a Christian band. We played worship. Um, the band fell apart and I decided I'd go back to, I'd go back to school. And so I went to Bible college, uh, long story short, I had planned to just do business stuff, but man, I just fell in love with learning about, uh, the church and about the Bible. So I decided to do the master of divinity. Um, and that's, I went to ACU and did the master of divinity and, and just absolutely fell in love with the discipline of history, with the history of Christianity, um, I found so much, uh, so much to enrich my own faith and life and practice in the church. And so I went on and did the um, uh, doctor of philosophy in religious history, kind of focusing on on the history of Christianity. And all through that time, um, I and my wife have served in Christian churches and churches of Christ and in various kinds of roles. And, and we continue to do that here in Knoxville. We've been here in Knoxville for uh, just over eight years now. We moved here in 2013, and we just absolutely love Johnson University and the students here. Just wonderful folks here at the university uh, to work with. So uh, yeah, we are just we are loving every minute of it. And of course, our girls—they're four and six—so uh, they they're a constant source of joy uh, for us. So yeah, we're just we're we're living our best lives. Jamie, that it's interesting that uh, you indicated you grew up in the acapella. Churches of Christ, as as I did. One of the great things that has been a result of Common Grounds Unity is I'm meeting all kinds of folks in educational institutions in the different streams of our movement, and I've become more familiar with Kentucky Christian. How did you, as a young man that grew up as a preacher's kid in the acapella churches, land at Kentucky Christian? It's a great question. So up until I was 15, my dad was a full-time minister in Acapella Churches of Christ. Um, when I was 15, we moved to back to Ohio. We had, dad had been in ministries for a couple of years in various churches. Um, we did a lot of moves. And so when we went back to Ohio, um, we began going to a, it was still called a Church of Christ, but it was an independent Christian church where uh, some of our friends went. And so the only thing that changed was the piano. I, I wasn't really aware, uh, like mom and dad didn't really like highlight this stuff. So, I mean, I knew that was a difference, but I didn't really, I didn't understand the big differences then. And so when we went back to Ohio and we were going to a Christian church, then naturally it was like, oh, Cincinnati Christian or KCU were natural 
several options for for school. So I ended up, you know, Casey. So so I, I basically spent half of my life in acapella churches of Christ, uh, and then half uh, in independent Christian churches and independent Christian church institutions at KCU. And that Dad had gone to ACU, so it was a kind of a natural thing as I was researching schools uh, to go to ACU. And so I literally have spent both my you know worshiping life and my educational life split uh, between both of these groups. I didn't fully recognize and understand uh, how interesting that was and that that was happening until I was in graduate school at ACU and learned about this heritage. When people ask, like, so are, so are you are you a member of the Christian churches then? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, so not the Acapella Churches of Christ. I'm like, no, no, yeah, I am also a member of Acapella Churches of Christ. Uh, I like to tell people I'm 100% both. I mean, I have I feel like I have both feet in both worlds, and I always have when I go to an Acapella Church of Christ. I'm like, oh, yeah, these are my people. And when I go to an independent Christian church, I'm like, oh, yeah, these are my people. Uh, and more recently, I've, I've been doing some work with di- – disciples at a historical um, society and, you know, getting familiar with them as well. And I think it's just, it's just great that we have these, all of these traditions we can work uh, together with. So I'm 100% uh, Christian church, 100% church of Christ. Oh, love that. Love that story. Common ground unity has been your life story. Yeah, that's right. Another reason you're so passionate about John 17 and and this whole mission. Uh, hey, I want to talk to you about your your book, Among the Early Evangelicals. It, it does a deep dive into the origins of Stone Campbell movement and, and the environment that influenced Thomas and Alexander Campbell. And so before we go further, could you speak about any correlations between exploring our personal histories and how those personal histories shape us? And boy, you've got a great personal history. And then exploring our spiritual heritage. In other words, why is it important to understand our histories personally and and ours spiritually? We are, I mean, we are all so deeply shaped by our personal and spiritual heritages. I like to call this our um, DNA, you know, quote unquote DNA. So studying our history really helps us understand who we are, why we're kind of wired in certain ways, why we do and believe, you know, do the things we do, why we believe the things that we believe. But it's not just our, um, you know, our spur- our personal, our personal and spiritual um, journeys or histories that we're exploring. It's really collective DNA. You know what I mean? Collective DNA, mm-hmm. like we're all formed and shaped kind of relative to our context and the groups that sort of have given us a way to view the world and act in the world. And these contexts, they really shape how we, um, you know, how we understand God, how we expect to uh, experience God. And so to engage our personal and our collective spiritual heritage. And here I'm not just talking, thinking about, you know, Stone Campbell movement, but also the broader Christian history as we engage our, our, our spiritual heritage, our collective spiritual heritage throughout time, we open ourselves up to these rich resources for our faith and for our life today. And I often, I talk about this, you know, especially as I'm trying to teach this stuff to 18 year olds or whatever, you know, like, why is history, why should we study history? You know, why am I supposed to learn about Christian history? I mean, to ignore our history would in some ways be like willingly succumbing to amnesia Mm-hmm. And just cutting ourselves off from all sor- all sorts of friends and resources and um, advisors and spiritual formation. But on the other hand, to explore this history, to explore our, 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 our histories is really to explore who we've been, the good and the bad and, and the ugly, you know, and, and, and where we want to where we want to go. And so in my view, 
by exploring our, our histories and coming to know them, um, we come to know the great diversity of the Christian experience and the Christian family, um, long lost brothers and sisters and cousins. And I think when we do that, that should cause us humility um, and excitement too. It should excite us. And so I think, and, and I, I preach this all the time, a humble engagement of our past. So like literally the discipline of history leads to spiritual formation in all sorts of ways. Wow, that is fascinating, Jamie. For someone like me who did not grow up in the church, um, I feel like I'm learning so much. Um, this is so interesting. Um, and I have another question for you, Jamie. In your book, you suggest that Thomas Campbell's declaration and address was more of a collection of existing ideas rather than original thinking arising out of the American experience. So could you speak to us about the relevance of this document in Campbell's time and how it is still relevant for us today? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, to get into like, so historians debate this stuff, right? And we, and oftentimes the Stone Campbell movement has, or the restoration movement has been sort of caricatured or described as this quintessentially American movement. Like the American experiment fundamentally defines what this movement was all about. Uh, and so what I'm arguing in this book through researching the earlier stuff in Ireland and in Scotland and in England is like, wow, actually all the stuff that, that, that Thomas Campbell wrote in 1809 in the Declaration and Address, most of that stuff uh, he had already experienced in the missionary societies in um, in England, but especially in Ireland, one that he was a co-founder of. And so uh, that's significant for, for understanding Campbell and who Campbell is. It's very different when we, you know, sort of say like, hey, Campbell is a product of the evangelical missionary societies of the 1790s versus, hey, Campbell is a product of the American frontier. Those those sort of like help us understand very different parts of our of our DNA. So so broadly speaking, there was a particular you know Campbell's at, at this particular particular moment in time. The Protestant missions movement has just really started in the 1790s, and Thomas Campbell is right smack in the middle of it. The stuff that William Carey was saying directly animated Thomas Campbell and, and the Presbyterians in Ireland, and 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 these evangelicals who had st really started the missionary movement in the, on the Protestant side in earnest, really in the 1790s. There was stuff earlier in the 1700s, but really in earnest in the 1790s. They were really emphasizing that everyone should have this active faith and should be involved in spreading the gospel and should be helping the orphan and should be contributing to missions. And everyone should be, you know, born again and should have this active and vibrant religious faith. And at that particular moment, when these things were being articulated, there was also this new sort of way to do missions. It's called a voluntary society, where Christians could could sort of go outside of the denominations and as individuals create these societies that anyone from any denomination could kind of participate in. And so when you put all of that together, then you have the recipe for really for Campbell's vision, this idea that we should downplay denominational identity in favor of New Testament Christianity, on which all Christians in all denominations, at least ostensibly, could agree. So the whole reason, though, really to unite together was for this major errand or this major mission 
that they were called to, and that is to win the world to Christianity. And so in all of these missionary, evangelical missionary societies in the early, in the 1790s and the early 1800s, there's this idea, right, floating around. And Campbell kind of packages that in a unique way. And, and a lot of people, um, I would describe it as kind of a domino effect in Campbell's mind it, that he's sort of using all of this evangelical missionary stuff and he puts it together and, and an emphasis on the New Testament. And, and there's this domino effect where he believed like, hey, we can rest- if we restore the New Testament church, that is what will cause unity among Christians. And once that unity happens, that unity is going to cause the conversion of the world. And so he has this broad vision, but it's all rooted there in this evangelical missionary moment. And so I think today when, you know, you asked that last part of that question, how is that relevant for us today? I mean, it's important to realize that you can't, for in Thomas Campbell's mind, you can't have one of those ideals without the other ideals. That is, you can't have unity on its own without the other ideals in the in the package that Thomas Campbell made sense of the whole thing. Uh, you can't have just restoration and just focus on restoring the New Testament church and lose unity, not at least without getting rid of our DNA or getting rid of our, our roots uh, to sort of appropriate for us today to sort of use our history to be aware of our DNA is to say, man, for Thomas Campbell, restoration and unity and missions are intricately um, intertwined and you actually really can't take them apart that you they've got to be taken together and historically speaking in terms of the the movement after Campbell a lot a lot of the divisions have happened when a group decides to focus on one and neglect some of the others boy that is fascinating context and background um, one of the things I'd like you to talk about for a couple of moments Uh, is the three Alexander Campbells as it relates to the missionary societies and how that contributed to the divisions we now have in the Stone Campbell movement. Yeah, this is one of the most important um, historical debates. So debates among historians, there's always been this debate. And and the key question among people who study Alexander uh, Campbell is how much did he change? So he, he starts really writing a lot in the 1820s. And those 1820s writings, are, you know, you could describe them as iconoclastic. They're acerbic. They're sharp. They're harsh. I mean, he it just comes out guns blazing in, this, in, the, in the Christian Baptist. That's the publication that he's writing in. And so there's this kind of uh, Campbell that we, always, that we always envision as the Christian Baptist Campbell. But then over the 1830s and 1840s, another Campbell emerged that, and in the 1820s, by the way, that Campbell said we should not participate in missionary societies. Uh, he said, you know, the missionary societies are are just promoting denominational identities. The missionary societies, he argued in the 1820s, aren't authorized in the New Testament. So he couldn't find, you know, a book, chapter, and verse that suggested missionary societies were the New Testament pattern. And so he rejected them. But then in the 1830s and 1840s, he wrote a couple of different series of essays where he came to embrace these missionary societies that were beyond the local congregation because he started finding some texts in the New Testament that suggested Christians in different areas might work together for a common common errand or for a common mission. And so that's been the story up to the point of my book. There was this first Campbell that that hated the missionary societies and thought they were wrong. And then there was a second Campbell who liked the missionary societies. And he even became, by 1849, Alexander Campbell is the first president of the American Christian um, uh, or the American Christian Missionary Society. So the, the big first missionary society of the Stone Campbell movement. What I'm arguing in this book is actually there's, there's another Campbell before those two Campbells. And the first Campbell actually 
fully embraces the missionary moment and the missionary society idea. So the Christian Association of Washington that, that Thomas Campbell founded is actually a missionary society. It's the same as all the other evangelical missionary societies. They, they had member dues that everybody paid across denominations. You were welcome to join as long as you were good with this society hiring itinerant ministers or ministers that would travel around and preach the simple ancient gospel. And so Campbell, Alexander Campbell fully embraced that idea in 1809, 1810, 1811. Throughout the 1810s, we have evidence that the, you know, the Campbells and their churches were supporting the broad missionary societies, even the Baptist missionary society, all the way up till 1821. But then Campbell makes this sharp turn in the 1820s from sort of a full-throated embrace and promotion of the evangelical missionary societies to a sharp rejection. And a lot of that has to do with the way he started to view the Bible, I think. A lot of it had to do with with the way that the missionary society started to change in the 1820s, the denominations started taking the missionary societies again. Instead of them being interdenominational, now they seem to be just promoting denominationalism, and that he didn't like that. And he really took a sharp turn uh, in terms of uh, really viewing the Bible as anywhere where there was silence, we had to like not do those things. So silence was prohibitive. So all these things are happening in the 1820s. Um, that, and then in the 1830s and 1840s, we get a switch back. So in some ways, broadly speaking, these three Campbells, the first one loves missions. The second one opposes them for all sorts of complex reasons. The third one comes back again to sort of a cautious embrace of the missionary society and then becomes the president of the missionary society. Of course, this is so important for Stone Campbell history because the missionary societies were one of the major causes of the first division between the disciples of Christ and the churches of Christ. Absolutely. So your take on that, would it be that his, his concern and his first shift had more to do with the sectarian and denominational takeover of the societies, and then he, he lacked scriptural support, so he, he fought it more? Or was it is much both that he he took a view of scripture that it didn't authorize and saw the the problem with the denominations taking such a hold. How, how would you read that? Yeah, it is definitely both. And so, you know, I covered everything that I could find that he wrote in the 1820s, and I and I covered this in several pages, but you know, five, 10, 15 pages in the book. And it is definitely like, depending on the time, you know. So one time he's got this missionary, you know, there'll be a missionary out there preaching for one of the societies, and you know, he gets a ton of money. And then Campbell the next day, you know, he'll write a he'll write a, a, an article saying these missionaries they're just after money. I can't believe that you know. This for four sermons, this person made that much money. Then the next time he's he's critiquing it for pragmatic reasons. Look at all the money we've raised for missions, and look, there's only a handful of converts. It's not pragmatic. And then the next article he'll be saying, look, there is no book, chapter, and verse that suggests the ancient church thought we should have a missionary society. Instead, it should only be the local congregation. And of course, those ideas continue to animate many within the Stone Camp, certain groups in the Stone Campbell movement. These debates are still live. That is, is is only the local congregation the the means of converting the world and engaging engaging the world, or can we work across denominations in sort of cooperative efforts? And people still come down differently on that. So, shorter answer to your question, Kevin, is that it's it's all it's all of the above. Yeah, I understand. We're still having that conversation today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is fascinating and so uh, so helpful, Jamie. Uh, this next question is somewhat related to what you were saying. Uh, in several places within your book, you talk about how many within the Stone Campbell movement made a shift from pragmatic, primi primit 
primitivism, sorry, excuse my English, to sectarian primitivism. Could you unpack that for us a little more, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm sure uh, some of the listeners are like, wait, what now? Pragmatic primitivism and sectarian <laughs> primitivism. So I, I think we probably start just saying, you know, primitivism, I, I, everybody probably understands this, but for the sake of clarity, you know, primitivism is just this idea of looking back to the primitive ancient church. Oftentimes it's envisioned as this sort of primordial era where uh, the church kind of transcended you know, time and space and gave us this golden sort of era. And so primitivism is this idea of looking back, but then there's all kinds of ways um, to, you know, engage primitivism. And the primitivism that the Campbells first encountered was kind of this warm, um, broad ranging and really undefined primitivism that was just simply pragmatic. That's the way I describe it in the book. That is these missionary societies that included, you know, Anglicans and Presbyterians and Baptists and independents, they were all agreed on primitivism, but it was very pragmatic. They're just like, look, we're not going to define it. We just all agree that the ancient church is better than our current denominations. And we can just agree that our, our current denominational confession came about later and in history, and they're not as good as the ancient church. And so they just kind of agreed and they just said, we can all agree on that. Therefore, we can all throw our money in together to send out missionaries like William Carey and others around the world to just preach a basic ancient gospel. That's that's the basic vision that Alexander Campbell got and or that Thomas Campbell got in these missionary societies. So that's pragmatic primitivism. It's just, it's solely for the purpose of cooperating to win the world to a simple ancient gospel. And and what we see, as we've just been talking about in the 1820s, there's this real shift toward a much more sectarian primitivism. And that is, by that I mean, you know, a narrowly, the Campbells start narrowly defining their primitivism. And that is, you know, the New Testament faith. And they drew these hard lines, right? And and they came, they became more anti-denominational than non-denominational or maybe interdenominational. Um, so they were kind of like against the denominations. The denominations are evil. The denominations are causing the division. So sectarian primitivism uh, didn't really want to work necessarily with other denominations. It's it's more concerned about condemning them and separating from them and judging them. So sectarian primitivism really, in the Campbell's vi- version of it, wanted to restore the New Testament church and condemn all who did not conform. They continued in the 1820s to say we're after unity, but the focus really then does shift on restorationism and this sectarian primitivist ideal. And of course, as you all are both aware, we continue to grapple with both of these visions of primitivism, oftentimes not aware of how they both live in our DNA. And they're both there and different groups go back to the different versions of primitivism that we come to like. They're both there and we continue to like, oh, which, you know, what does it mean to say that we love the New Testament church and and what's the best way to engage unity via primitivism. So that's some, that's just a basic vision of some of the stuff I talk more in the book about. Jamie, before I ask you a little bit about just practical suggestions you might have for our, our future, here you are a a college professor teaching there at Johnson. You you mentioned uh, earlier in our interview, talking to 18 year olds, uh, teaching these things. What, What do you find among our, uh, your freshmen that are coming in and sophomores that you're teaching there at Johnson? Do they have an awareness of our history and and do they light up a bit when they start learning and thinking about these things? What's your experience there? 
Um, it's, of course, it's all across the board, but the large majority do not know about the heritage. Um, and I should say that at Johnson right now, um, probably about 60, 60% of our incoming students, usually that's about the average, maybe 50% of the incoming freshmen are from independent Christian churches. So we have very few from acapella churches of Christ and we have very few from disciples, though we always have one or two every couple of years from each of those traditions. Primarily, it's independent Christian churches and then the next biggest group are Baptists and then on and on uh, with your evangelical groups that come. Uh, and so among the independent Christian churches, and I think this this continues to hold true in most of the independent Christian church um, uh, congregations, there is very little awareness or celebration of the heritage. In mm-hmm. fact, from my experience in all of the, in all three of the groups, but especially in acapella churches of Christ and Christian churches, I think the Christian churches and the congregations in Christian churches are the most deficient, or I would say anemic in understanding the heritage at the same time. Um, in some ways, the Christian churches are kind of like helping, helping their, their, you know, kids actually live into this non-denominational identity because they come here and they actually don't think they have a heritage. I don't actually think that's super healthy. Um, I think, you know, holding up the heritage and why we, you know, why we say the things we say and why we celebrate sort of non-denominationalism or we push against denominational identities in favor of something that could create unity is more helpful. So most of the students coming in are not aware and have very, very little um, awareness of the uh, heritage. Most of them don't know they have a heritage. In fact, the a majority of them, when I ask them what denomination they're from, from independent Christian churches, they just write non-denominational. Some of them write non-denominational Christian church. And it's not until I start saying, here are the periodicals. Do you see these periodicals in your foyer? Um, what is the, what does the sign say? What, you know, what, what camps did you go to? What, you know, and then you start getting at the institutions that actually influenced and shaped them. And they're like, what? Usually the response to that is deep, deep gratitude. It's like the way that one person said it to me, like, I just found a cousin, a long lost cousin that I, or a long lost brother or sister that I didn't even know existed. You know what I mean? (laughs) Absolutely. And and we, and we do a great, I think we do a great disservice by not, you know, by not uh, engaging uh, our heritage and teaching our heritage and and being aware of it. Again, the good, the bad, and the ugly, we can, we can kind of reclaim the parts that we love and push against some of the things we've learned over the last couple hundred years, if we actually engage the heritage. But by and large, most of the students coming in don't, don't, don't know about it. Well, I, I'll tell you, I love from talking to you for just this time period, man, your energy, your your passion, your insight into it. I, I love that someone like you is teaching them because I would imagine uh, when they come out of a semester with you, uh, their eyes are more open and they're more excited themselves. So, man, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're one of the teachers in <laughs> a, an institution like Johnson. I'm, they're blessed. Thank hey, you. I, I, wa- I appreciate that. Well, I want to ask you one more uh, question to kind of wrap things up. Um, what, what would you say that we need to learn from all of this? And do you have suggestions for us for a healthier and more unified future? I mean, so for me, the biggest sort of like, what if, uh, and you know, ACU press hats off to them. Um, they really encouraged me to write a, so what chapter at the end, which I did, um, you know, it's so like, <laughs> so, so what, you know, like, what does this new understanding of our actual origins mean? And so, I would say that recovering this part of our story or resituating our origin story, which again is so significant, we've come to know 
so much in the last several decades about how our stories and the stories we tell ourselves about who we are, who we've been, who we want to be are so important in shaping our uh, engagement of the world. When we resituate our origin story within this broader evangelical movement that was um, that existed to unite denominations for this great mission to win the world of Jesus Christ. Oh man, there's so much I think that we learn about that. Like we're not, ju- we did not just come from fertile American soil, just drinking, you know, the, you know, just totally convinced of democratization and and putting democracy back on Christianity. That's sort of like the crude vision of how a lot of American religious histories tell our story. Now mm-hmm. we're wrapped up in this broad vision of the world that is broken and that that Christians must unite across denominations to work together for this great errand to win the world to Christ. And we have this, you know, basic foundation that we can that we can all agree on. And so for one thing, it rem- this story reminds us that across all of these 1790s documents that sort of animate who we are and why we come to be is John 17. They're all preaching John 17, John 17, John 17, and this deep commitment to cooperation uh, with Christians of various stripes. And to me, that's like a beautiful mission statement for a movement. And I hope that we can continue to tell this origin story and really have it shape our individual and our collective identities. We are a pe- like I, I say this all the time. Like, look, we are a people whose reason for being is Christian <laughs> unity. Like Amen. that's we arose in the Christian tradition, begging for unity, so that the world would believe. Because our founders were reading John seventeen and Jesus's last will at, and believed it. <laughs> they like believed yeah. that our unity would be a testament to the world that Christ is who that Christ loves them. And so for me, our Heritage has these rich resources uh, to speak to these deep divides, you know. In and, and, and I'll, I'll say this really quickly, you know, for them, for the founders, you know, say around 1800, it was the denominational divisions that really, really, really uh, spoke to them and that they attacked. I think in 2021, as I try to appropriate and find our heritage ways that we can grab onto our heritage and and speak a word to the Christian tradition today, I think our heritage has rich resources to speak to the deep racial divides in Stone Campbell groups and in American Christianity more broadly. And of course, we'll talk more about that in the next episode. I am excited about that next conversation. And I'll tell you, boy, in that wrap up, you you almost moved from teaching to preaching. I, I, yes. I'm ready to give you an amen. Amen. <laughs> and I know folks out listening are doing the same thing. So Jamie, what, what a delight to, to be with you in this conversation today and to get to know you and to introduce you to more of our listeners who know about you. I want to mention again, your work uh, in this particular area. We'll talk about your other book next week when we talk about slavery's long shadow. But again, to our listeners, the book is Among the Early Evangelicals, The Transatlantic Origins of the Stone Campbell Movement. Came out in 2016. It's on ACU Press, and you can Google that and find it on Amazon and at other booksellers. I hope you'll buy that because it's just got some great uh, history and context that will help you as a student of our movement and more than as a student, but as one uh, pursuing unity uh, with a passion for the mission of God. So, Jamie, or, by the way, that book will probably be under Dr. James Gorman, um, but he goes by Jamie. Jamie, so good to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Again, an honor to be with you all. And Nadine, so fun to work with you today. So glad to have you with us. 
Yes, I learned a lot today. Thank you so much. Well, you're a great co-host, and you're going to be back with me for our next podcast, as is Jamie. So join us. We're going to continue in our next podcast next week with James Gorman of Johnson University. Have a blessed week. Go out and get a cup of coffee with another believer that you don't know and start building those bridges based on our common ground in Christ. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. There are plenty of resources and you can subscribe to the weekly email articles. Join the Facebook group or find our YouTube channel. We've also provided a link in the show notes for comments. You can ask questions or suggest topics and guests. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can do that too through the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.